Good morning, everyone. So just to give you a heads up, I might cough later, but it is not COVID. So don't, don't be scared and run away. And that's why the big bottle of water is there. Stand by. Right, so I hope you've all been having a good time going through the book of Galatians. I hope you've been able to study well as you go to your GG. And if you're not in a GG, please do join a growth group. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. Help us, Lord, by your Spirit to speak to us and help us to listen carefully to your words to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There was once a zoo that decided that its role should no longer be about conservation of animals and public, and, uh, public education. Instead, they decided it's more important to focus on attracting a lot of visitors who will pay good money to see the animals. So one day when the star attraction, the gorilla, died, a newly hired staff was told to wear a gorilla suit and pretend to be a gorilla to please the visitors. Now, the staff thought that was really silly, but he obeyed and wore the gorilla suit because that is what management wanted. As he climbed, swung around and pretended to be a gorilla, none was wiser to the idea that this was actually just a man in a gorilla suit. He entertained many people, and the zoo management was happy with his performance. He received a pay rise and was praised by his boss. But one day, while performing, he accidentally slipped and fell into the next enclosure, the lion's den. And immediately, a lion rushed to him. The guy in the gorilla sort thought, thought Habis. And he started to yell out loudly for help. And then suddenly, the lion spoke to him. Shut up, you fool, you'll expose us all. <laughs> when we hold on to the wrong things, or we are influenced by people who hold to the wrong things, sometimes what happens is we end up undermining the good things ourselves because we accidentally join in that agenda and we make a fool of ourselves. In today's passage, we will see how Cephas, because of his influence, uh, because of the influence over, uh, of other people on him, he acts in such a foolish way that it even affects the gospel message. With that, we dive straight into our passage in verse 11. Verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. When Cephas, that is the Aramaic name for the Apostle Peter, came to Antioch, we find that Paul opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, these are strong words to bring to the Apostle that's often thought of as the leader of all the other Apostles, right? But we see a hint here that this is not really personal, but it's gospel-driven. And the reason I say this is because we see that he calls him Peter, when he talks about him as the apostle who preached the gospel to the Jews in all his other writings. But here, when Peter acts wrongly and is at fault, he uses a different name and calls him Cephas instead. So I think Paul intentionally switched up between these two names referring to the same person. So to kind of show that, well, I'm condemning him for the things that he did wrong, but I still have respect for him la, as an apostle, right? And so his purpose in opposing him here is more likely for the sake of the gospel, not between the ego of this Jewish 
apostle and this apostle to the Gentile, right? And of course, the reason for his strong response, which he considers to be a problem for the gospel, is given in the next verse, verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So it seems that certain men came from James. That is, I take it to mean that they came from Jerusalem as representatives of Jewish Christians who were there under the Apostle James. And I don't think it means that you know, they are representing the gospel views that James held. Now, here when this group came, Paul names them the circumcision party, we see that there is some sort of problem because Peter, Cephas, who had originally eaten with the Gentiles, suddenly drew back from eating with the Gentile Christians. And we find out from the text that he separated himself from them because he was afraid of what the circumcision party would say about him. Now, the fact that these people came from Jerusalem, they're referred to as the circumcision party, gives us a hint as to what the problem is. It's something to do with Jews who are circumcised and the Gentiles who are uncircumcised. Now, it is likely that they would not have just been concerned about circumcision. Right? They're not just running around with a ready-to-circumcise kid. Are you circumcised? That's, that's probably not the big thing. Because if that was the case, Cephas would not have been worried about how they see table fellowship with the Gentiles, right? And most likely, what they were primarily worried about is about their identity as part of God's people. And so this is more about law-keeping, their concern for Jewish things such as clean and unclean. So these are kind of defenders of tradition. And this concern for their tradition then would manifest in their ministry and that would make circumcision to an important thing, right? Because that is the first thing that will demand of any Gentiles who want to become Christians, as they would see it. And so they will demand that they get circumcision so that they can be accepted as brothers, so that they can be guided to follow the laws and live as clean people. And so I think this is why they are labeled here as a circumcision party. So don't make the mistake of thinking that their, their doctrine is only about this boundary marker that separates Jews and Gentile in terms of circumcision. It's a bigger thing. It's a tradition thing, right? Now, Paul does not see them as brothers in Christ who have some small cultural hang-ups because in Titus chapter 1, Paul actually calls this circumcision party a rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, and they must be silenced as they are disrupting ministry and teaching what they ought not to teach for shameful gain. So these guys look Christian, claim to represent Christianity from Jerusalem, but they were the false brothers that Paul accused last week of trying to bring people back to the bondage of the law. However, when Cephas saw this strong pro-Jewish tradition group coming from Jerusalem, he was not actually concerned about the potential for false teaching. Instead, he was thinking of number one, and he became worried about what they would think of him. Because now he's eating with the uncircumcised, maybe even partaking in unclean foods. Now, these were people who came from Jerusalem. They will probably go back and report to James and the other leaders in Jerusalem. So what would Cephas do? Now, 
these teachings that they share about keeping to Jewish laws brings up a unique situation that Christians at that time probably have not considered in depth. It's a new issue for them. What do you do with these Galatians who are Gentile Christians who have come to God through Christ? Should they become Jewish? Should they obey Old Testament laws, Jewish traditions? The circumcision party who secretly hold to Judaism, right? They would insist, yeah, of course, they should get circumcised, follow the tradition and the law so that they're considered clean, so we have no qualms in having fellowship with them. After all, that's what Judaism would teach, right? Gentiles, however, they have become Christians because they obeyed the commands of Christ. They have not come to become followers of Christ by obeying Jewish laws. They have not therefore held to these rituals and traditions that, that through culture, through what the Pharisees has taught them, through their history, they have come to hold. So the question then is, why should they be obligated to keep the laws? These new worshippers of God came in not as Jews practicing Jewish things, but as Christians who follow the commandment of Jesus. So when Peter had joined them in table fellowship and shared meals with them, they would have eaten unclean food and they wouldn't have thought it's wrong because they knew it is not food that makes something unclean. That's what Jesus taught them. It is only the Jewish Christians who have been following the law who go, yeah, babi, haram. Right? So Peter, Cephas, became worried when this group from Jerusalem holding to Jewish traditions had come along because he's worried now that they will see him acting and living as if a Gentile and not a Jew, and they're going to report back to the Jews back at Jerusalem, and this is going to have implications to his reputation back in Jerusalem and affect his ministry towards the Jews. That's his primary mission field, right? So because of this, he withdraw from fellowship with them and most likely sat with only Jewish Christians for his makan. So he avoided table fellowship with Gentile Christians so that there will be no doubts cast on his ministry by this circumcision party. Now so far this seems like a wise move, right? About being careful so we can continue to do what is good, continue to do ministry. But then we come to verse 13 and we see that this has started a domino effect. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. What Cephas did was not something that only affected himself, but this was then picked up by other Jewish Christians who, monkey see, monkey do, follow him. Thus, this action of withdrawing from taking meals with Gentile Christians becomes something that Paul condemns strongly and calls an act of hypocrisy. And when Barnabas, who was Paul's companion, who knew the gospel that Paul was preaching, followed Cephas in doing the same thing, Paul said that Barnabas was led astray. He didn't say Barnabas was being smart about his ministry choices. And it shows us that he sees this influence as something really bad. So what Paul is saying here is, this is a big deal, guys. It's not just about who you hang out to makan with. Right? So for those of you thinking after service where to go makan, ah, you can come down, lah, right? The issue is bigger than that. By not fellowshipping with the Gentile Christians, withdrawing from them, Cephas has treated them as if they were unclean, as if 
as if they were not fit to be on the same table with him. Even if actually this was not his real concern, he was just being wise, right? So this became a big issue because Cephas is an apostle. His actions have a huge consequence to all the Christians who look to him for guidance. And because of his action, the church now seems to be split. Two different gospels. It gives the impression that despite being made right by the gospel of Jesus Christ, something wrong with the Gentiles. They're still unclean. They're still not worthy of table fellowship. It also implies that the gospel Paul preached to the Gentiles is not a complete gospel. And what's the implication? Verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So firstly, Paul is saying that the conduct of rejecting the Gentile Jews is not in step with the gospel. This is not a wisdom issue. This has become a gospel issue. Because the implication is that despite being washed by the blood of Christ, it implies the Gentiles are still not clean. And so by making it seem as if there's something lacking in their gospel, it's kind of like saying their salvation not really complete. They're not really worthy of being called God's people. And it implies that the Gentile Christian then need to do something more than having faith in Jesus in order to be accepted as an equal Christian brother by these Jewish Christians. And if that is so, what is the value of the blood of Christ? Now, Cephas may not have meant to say that, but unfortunately, that is the implication of what he has done. Actions matter. So for someone who has been preaching the gospel, like Peter has been doing, you can see now why Paul calls him a hypocrite. He preached the gospel, but when push comes to shove, he does not treat those who believe in the gospel as part of the family of God. He distances himself. And you can also see why this is personal, right? Because the Galatians listened to the gospel that Paul preached to them, and now here comes this apostle from Jerusalem who seems to imply that their gospel is incomplete, they need something more to be accepted. And it implies that Paul had the wrong gospel. So it's personal also. Lah. So, as it became a gospel issue, and we saw this far-reaching implication in chapter 1 itself of Galatians, right? Paul said that they were deserting the right gospel, and they start listening to the false teachers. And we can see that this has become a big problem. So Paul had to go hard on this issue. He cannot stay silent. And so we see here Paul explaining to Cephas that if he, a Jew, originally accepted the Gentile converts, lived with them, had fellowship meals with them, and then suddenly he withdraws from them, then he is indirectly coercing the Gentiles to accept Jewish tradition so that they will be accepted. So indirectly he's adding pressure to them and he is adding to the gospel now in the way that they will see it by implying to them that their faith in Christ alone is not enough. You need to do something more to be fully accepted by the apostle. And so the people who this letter was written to 
was starting to feel this pressure. I also have to adopt Jewish customs and law. I need to follow all of this, otherwise I'm not actually a Christian. Adding extra clauses to the gospel is a serious matter. So Paul goes to great pains then to explain to Cephas exactly what is wrong with his reasoning and how he has behaved. So we see in verse 15 and 16, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet we know that a person is not justified by works of law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have belief in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So he speaks here to Cephas, one Jew to another, both preaching the same gospel. He points out, yes, he and Cephas are Jews by birth. Yes, there are people who are acquainted with the Jewish customs and law. Yes, they are different from the Gentiles because the Gentiles are not under the law. And from a Jewish viewpoint, if you don't have the law, you're a sinner. So the Gentiles are automatically sinners, unlike Jews who had the law. And this is looking at it from a Jewish perspective. Like he's not saying that automatically Gentiles are sinners, but that's the Jewish culture. He's saying, look, we can admit all of this, right? We have all these advantages as Jews, yet they do not come to salvation through the Jewish adherence to the law or through the traditions. Instead, both Paul and Cephas definitely acknowledge that they are saved only through faith in Jesus. Thus, through relying on fulfilling the law, they will both agree, no one can, can be justified through that. And this term justified is an important term. It's borrowed from the formal language of the courts at that time. Uh, in simpler terms, Justification, then, is the legal basis that leads to salvation. It is a declaration, then, that this person is right with God. So it's kind of like, you know, they have a court case, look at all the evidence, and the judge says, bam, justified, free to go. Right? So we are saved because we are justified, declared right to be with God. And this is the point that Paul is asking here, right? Are we made right with God? Because we sit under the law, we come before God, and then we are found innocent of any charge of breaking it. Right? We have kept the law perfectly. Or, are we made right because actually under the law we have broken it, but Christ has paid for our sins, so now we are declared no longer having this sentence of punishment over our head, God declares you are good to go. And Cephas knows. The right answer should be, we are justified by Christ, not the law. So Cephas, by doing what he did, leading to this pressuring of the Gentiles to come back under the law, has actually undermined the gospel promise of justification by the blood of Christ. And instead, it seems to tell the Gentiles, right, they need to come under the law so that you can be considered clean and accepted. So if Cephas knows that justification came for Christ, not from the law, then why should Cephas act as if people are justified by the law and is now seeking to terminate fellowship with the Gentiles over this issue of clean and unclean? The condemnation that comes from the law of Moses should not apply to a Christian who's already sheltering under the blood of Jesus because the debt is paid by him. And to do this then, 
to apply that condemnation, to treat them as unclean, is actually to insult the power of the cross of Christ to bring people to salvation. To insult the power of Jesus to make people clean before God. Because the implication is, look, you are clean before God, God accepts you, but, you know, not clean before me, la <laughs> So this is what Paul is asking him here in order to help him see just how foolish what he is doing is. Right? So in verse 17, Paul continues this argument and he's using a rhetorical form, right? A what-if kind of thing. Verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. So Paul's argument here is this. If the Jewish Christians who have put their trust in Christ, right? And because they put their trust in Christ, they now have fellowship with Gentile Christians. We're brothers, right? We are safe, we have the same master. And then, through the other lens, through the lens of the law, they're found to be sinners. Because, hey, unclean lah, kawan. Then, is Christ to be blamed for leading them to sin? Because this fellowship with this so-called unclean Gentile happened because of Christ, isn't it? Because the Jews and the Gentile Christians believe in him, they're brothers, they're united, they have fellowship. From the law, we not clean. Nah. And if you say that, then Christ is a sinner who leads people to sin. And of course, the answer is certainly not. The justification that comes from Christ supersedes the condemnation from the law. So if we make a stupid argument that Christians are unclean because you don't follow this law, you don't follow the law of Moses, you don't eat kosher food, and then you apply the judgment or you fail to obey the law, you're not clean, we push you aside, then you are saying that Christ is someone that leads people to sin. Because what he has done is he has called people to be one people in him. So what a terrifying thing that Cephas has unwittingly done. You could continue blaming Christ then, right? Instead of coming and talking about unity in you, la, trusting in you, you should have preached the law, la, Christ. Tell them, work harder, follow the law. By doing all of this, see, now all your people are committing sins. It's terrible. Then he continues in verse 18, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So Paul explains a hypothetical scenario, right? Let's say, okay, la, I go back to what I rejected last time, right? I reject salvation comes by trusting in Christ. Check up saja lah. Then I turn back to the law, which he had once torn down. So he put the law on top of himself, and then he chose to uphold the fact that, okay, now I'm under the law. How do I get saved? I must fully, completely uphold the law of Moses as the way to come to salvation. And what happens? Under the law of Moses, he is found to be a transgressor. Because he has sinned. He can't stop sinning. And this is what happens to any of us who live under the law and the judgment that the law brings. You can never fulfill the law. Because if you can, then God would have been really cruel to send Jesus to die instead of telling you, guys, just work harder, please. So, now Paul has no choice but to accept this condemnation of this judgment from being under the law because he has rejected being justified through Christ, right? And so verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so I might live to God. So the implication now is that through the law, 
he needs to be judged, he needs to die. There's a death sentence because he's unable to keep the law. So through the law, he died to the law. Right? So he has to reject the law or die to the law metaphorically so that he might find another way to live and be right with God. The law cannot save. So in verse 20, he gives us a solution. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He is now united with Christ through faith, which means he is crucified with Christ. Who he is, his sins and his past, all the things that merits condemnation, is put on the cross together with Christ. All of that dies with Christ. The death that the law demands is paid there. The person who he is now is a Paul in whom Christ lives through faith because he is united with Christ. And so his flesh now is lived for the sake of Christ, no longer for his own goals and agenda anymore. And because Christ has so loved him and gave himself for Paul at the cross, he lives that life for Christ with thanksgiving. And there's also this side implication, right? He's free from the law. He's rejected the law again, right? Even if he come under the law, only place to go is die. So he goes to Christ to be saved. He's free from the law, but he's not free to sin because he's under Christ. He lives for Christ. And that is something he explores. You know, he double clicks in Romans. So you can go and check it out there. Then he comes to verse 21 and ends by saying, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And this is then the summary and thesis statement of this chapter, of this argument, of why he is right and Cephas is wrong. He does not nullify the grace of God by thinking that righteousness comes through the law. Because if he does that, like what Cephas has implied when he nullified the gospel message, then Christ has really died for no purpose because you're rejecting his blood you're rejecting that he can cleanse these gentiles and these friends was the other gospel that the galatians were accused of deserting to in chapter one this was the reason that this letter to the galatians were risen the reason he brings up the circumcision party here is because these were the guys that in chapter one paul pronounces anathema damn cut off go to hell right and so we can understand why Paul is so angry with them. These guys look like Christian, but they lead people under the law to bring Christians under slavery, which he mentioned last week. And in the weeks to come, we'll unpack more of this, right? But what do we learn from this passage today that speaks to us? Well, the most important thing lah, is for us to really, really understand. Justification, being made right with God, can only come through faith in Christ. We cannot turn back to any form of law obedience to justify us because once you do that, you're actually saying this is stupid. Christ is a sinner. And that nullifies then the faith in Christ and moves us from having faith in Christ to having faith in our own good works, which Paul has already demonstrated cannot save you. So we want to be careful that we actually have our confidence in salvation solely by trusting in Christ and not in the good things that we do. So don't think 
that doing upfront things in service, music team, welcoming team, don't think that attending Gigi regularly, coming for seminars, taking notes during sermons, don't think any of this will have any merit towards your salvation, towards your justification. Now, these are good things. But only faith in Christ can save you. So understand this rightly, so that you hold to this right gospel, because sometimes people get it wrong. Right? Uh, I've heard it said before, wow, this person uh, never come to Gigi before. I wonder, is he even Christian? Actually, you got a problem there, right? If you say that. Because you're saying then, to be a Christian, you have to go to Gigi. Now, of course, you have doubt about their faith and stuff like that, but you cannot say that that they're not Christian because they don't come to Gigi, right? So, we should also learn from Paul and be brave to correct those who teach the gospel wrongly. Don't be silent. Don't allow the gospel to get perverted. But you need to engage. Of course, we're not Paul, so there's wisdom lah, in engaging in a different way, right? This is apostle to apostle, different story, lah, right? But at the heart of it, we should stand in opposition to any attempts to distort the gospel. Don't let it slide. So be firm in your gospel conviction. Firstly, know what it is. Clarify, understand deeply, and then take to task anyone who preaches another gospel, intentionally or even unintentionally. Sometimes people come very shock, 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 give sermon, they say something, right? Hey, implication to the gospel here, friend. Go and talk to them. Right, maybe donate face-to-face -face and make a big issue, lah, see if they will re correct it next round, right? But if they continue persisting, ah, then in their face, lah. no choice. That is what we learn from here. Second point, then, is we cannot cause divisions by rejecting fellowship with other gospel-believing Christians just because they look different or their traditions are different. Christian unity is actually very important because it's part of the implication of the gospel. God didn't just save individuals. He saved individuals to make one people. So to reject Christian unity for any reason apart from the gospel is dangerous. And it can lead us to reject the gospel or to distort the gospel. Let me give an example, right? Uh, smack here. We can be people who take theology seriously. And that's a good thing, right? However, that would also mean that when people come and they have different theological convictions from us, we might tend to treat them differently. Say, for example, right? Sometimes we make jokes about charismatic Christians, right? Uh, I think you all heard of it, right? Hold the aircon, change the light bulb, right? And sometimes the joke becomes mocking. We can join in the peer pressure because this person joke, this person joke, okay, I also want to fit in, I also make fun of them. And we can end up taking things too far and end up isolating and rejecting them as Christians indirectly through how we treat them. And they might be tempted to think, well, for me to be Christian, I need to change, I cannot do this. So what we have done has gospel implications, isn't it? We may be tempted to look down on people uh, there are some people who speak in tongues in their services. Now, it is right to criticize that because Paul gives clear instructions how this speaking in tongues is to be practiced. 
And if that's not what's being practiced, that's right, you should tell, hey, you know, read this. But the problem happens when we push our differences so far that we treat them as lesser Christians. Not quite, uh, yeah, this one, I'm speaking in tongues, church, uh, better don't go. Right? We can do the same thing as well to those who disagree without theological positions. Any Calvinists here? How do you treat your Armenian friends? Now, we may not clearly say they're not Christians. We don't really hold, uh, we don't really hold to the idea that if you're Armenian, you're not Christian. But sometimes you give the implication, right? Oh, you don't understand salvation. Lah. Salvation is by God. You don't really trust God for salvation. You don't love God. You don't think God is powerful. What are we saying? Actually, you're not really Christian. Lah. My relationship to God is correct. You got it wrong, man. Would you feel comfortable then? having table fellowship with them, hanging out with them, or would you feel uncomfortable? Oh, yeah, this guy's a whole bunch of Armenians. Uh. I feel uncomfortable. Would that happen? Sometimes I have seen that happen. Let's bring it even closer to home. Look across the hall, you see the liturgical service. Those who lead the liturgical service will wear their robes, right? Uh, the people will have a more stiff and stoic way of worshipping. They carry like the cross inside. And we might criticize, wow, you spike organs. Uh. Uh, they will bow down in front. They make the sign of the cross. They use set prayers instead of spontaneous prayers. And so many things. And you will criticize these things. You may even criticize things that are more practical, right? Uh, how hard it is to get them to come to Bible studies. How hard it is to talk theology with them because their interests will be very different, right? They're interested in liturgies, which prayer book is better, the chants that was used by the Gregorian monks, historical Christian development. Now, there's a good opportunity to sit across the table, talk about these things, both to learn, be edified, and to correct each other. But do we allow for that? Or do we just see them as strange people doing their strange things because they're different? Now, not all of you do that, of course. Many are willing to not only have fellowship, but even some of you volunteer to help, and that's good. But there will be some who, while not meaning to, kind of keep the distance from them because you see them as weaker in their faith. Oh, you need to do like this, like this. No need, lah. so weak. They have all this extra stuff that we don't need. And if you have done that, even if it is unintentional, we want to be clear, right? We have inadvertently then set up two populations of Christians. Metaphorically speaking, one clean over here, the other one unclean over there. So the actions and our heart towards others can be a gospel issue, even if it's not our intention. People can be excited about Gregorian chants, dressing up for church, carrying the cross, procession of robe figures, and despite that difference, they are still fully our brothers and sisters in Christ. And how we treat them reveals if we agree that if they trust in Christ by faith, they are justified, made clean, and right with God. In fact, we can push it even further, there are some people who talk about expecting prosperity from God. They pray hard for wealth and health. Every time I ask them to pray, oh, wealth and health, promotion, blessing, right? But here's the thing. If they still share in the same gospel conviction, if they still say, we are saved by faith in Christ, my sins are made right because Christ died on the cross, then they are still our brothers and sisters. 
Shocking, right? Now, we don't need to hold what they believe in. We don't need to agree, right? And if it's uncomfortable, you don't like the crossing, carrying the cross, that's fine. You don't need to join the service. But the question is, do you love them as brothers and sisters, even though they're different? And if we fail to do that, we are insinuating that they have to change their secondary non-gospel issue belief so that we are willing to accept them as Christians. And you can see why that is wrong. It's exactly what happened with Cephas. So watch out for that. Because for us as Mac, the danger is our theological pride. We can become high and mighty in our attitude towards other Christians. Don't treat Smack as the only faithful church in Kuala Lumpur. We are not. Faithful does not mean getting every theological truth correct. And I'm convinced that even we may have got some things wrong, despite trying very hard to keep to study scripture. But the point is, that doesn't mean we're not Christians, right? Sometimes we just you know, listen to different commentary, we get some things wrong. We're still Christians, so let's extend others that same grace. Look for unity among Christians. A good place to begin is with these guys around the hall. Seek to fellowship with them. Don't treat them as strangers who come here to use the hall. So don't get me wrong, right? I'm not saying we can't disagree, but if anyone holds to the first order gospel in the correct way, then any disagreement we have with them should be disagreements in love as family in Christ not disagreement with condemnation, as we would disagree with heretics. Right? So the Church of Mother God, ah, yes, by all means, go all out. So let's look for Christian unity in how we seek to fellowship with these people who confess the right gospel. And lastly, be aware of peer pressure. Right? Don't cave in and do the wrong thing just because it's become the culture, just because it's become the expectation. Right? Hold firm to the gospel as the thing that guides you. If you follow peer pressure, right, you'll be no different than the guy in the introduction dressed up as a gorilla to please people. So please don't dress up as gorillas. Because one day then you'll realize that all the others who you've been following with the peer pressure, actually they also peer pressured. They're also dressing up as other animals and you have all deceived each other. Right? Come back to the gospel to check how you should behave because your actions matter. So stay faithful and see that your actions matter, so think through gospel lens. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together, and we pray, Father, for greater unity and love. Let us be clear about the gospel and how we are justified by Christ, and let us find this assurance, Father, that despite the differences that we may have, the gospel is so powerful that it unites us to you and makes us clean before you. Let this give us assurance and let this open up our hearts to those who are different. And let us then build up this kingdom that you have set up, Father, by calling in all manner of different people. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.